Hello and welcome to episode 47 of Sensational She Geek Live from Yancey Street. Today is Monday, January 10th, 2022, and this is my first episode of 2022. I had to take a little bit of break around the new year. Long story short, um, due to a bit of a kerfuffle between our landlord and a roommate, we were asked to leave the house we were living in, um, and I somehow managed to get an eviction notice retracted by just writing a nice letter. So miracles do happen. We don't have to move again. And we're back on track now. Uh, this is going to be a pretty packed episode because I have missed the past uh, week or so. But interestingly enough, I don't actually have too much in terms of news. Most of what I have for the news segment today is going to be rumors. So take all of that how you will. Um, I do have a fair amount of comic book picks to go through because, again, it has been two weeks since I posted an episode. And so we have reads from December 28th and 29th. And also this past week, the 4th and the 5th of January. Um, and I'm going to go over some comic book picks from both of those weeks. And then we have still the pull list for the coming week, which is things coming out for DC Comics tomorrow the 11th and for the rest of publications coming out on the 12th. While I have been a bit bum with the indie reads recently, this week I do have one, two, three, four, five different indie number ones that I'm going to be uh, adding to my pull list. So definitely check out that section if you're looking for new indie reads. And of course, uh, as because I have not had the episodes up yet, we do also have two segments talking about the book of Boba Fett. We have one for the premiere and one for last week's episode two. And just to give you a bit of forewarning, I loved this. Um, I think I loved the second episode somehow more than the first. So just to give you a heads up. I am super excited about the book of Boba Fett, uh, and more than th more thrilled than I can put words to that the horrendous rumors about what the plot was going to be are completely baseless. What a relief! This is golden Star Wars cinema. Oh, gotta rein it in. Gotta rein it in. Still just stupid sci-fi stuff, Anna. Still just stupid sci-fi stuff. Okay, let's not get all cinematography about Star Wars. It. Great, great stuff, but there's a reason they don't get put up for Oscars, says the woman who is very anti-awards show at this point in her life. But whatever. You, you hopefully see what I mean. This is all just massive geeky stuff, and it's just being done so well. I am super thrilled, and we'll, we'll talk about it when we get there. There's plenty of time. But before we get started here, I have to run through all of my socials for the new people. If there are any, hello, thank you, welcome. You can find me on Instagram, easiest. My Instagram is Anna with the comics because my name is Anna and I certainly have the comics. My Twitter is Savage She Geek because Sensational was too many letters. My website is sensationalshegeek.weebly.com. I'm hoping to get that legitimized into a just.com. I have not put money into it yet, which is why it has to have that Weebly extension. Not stuff that you need to know. Uh, but on that website, I do have highlights on the front page there about characters who are going to be very, very relevant in 2022. Um, specifically, specifically Madeline Pryor, a.k.a. the Goblin Queen, Ileana Rasputin, a.k.a. Magic, and Clea, a.k.a. the new Sorcerer Supreme, 
Marvel come, uh, I think it's March of this year. I also have, I've been posting my pod notes after I do any episodes, um, and that is for, it's, it's, it's the notes that I take to follow along while I record the episode. And I post those for people to be able to read the podcast instead of listen in case there's anybody who just prefers to do it that way uh, to catch up real quick or anybody who is hearing impaired, they can still keep up with the goings on of the podcast. I also have links to everywhere that you can listen to the podcast, which is most podcast hosting sites sites and apps, which does also include YouTube. Um, And on YouTube, I also post action figure review videos if you are at all interested in that. My most recent videos include the 2020 Marvel HasLab Sentinel, uh, the Marvel Legends Tigra uh, Greer Grant, the Shadow Meow Skulls from Fortnite, which I know nothing about Fortnite, so just be prepared. <laughs> and then there is a whole tour of our toy collection under Blacklight. Um, I really need to do another collection tour because we've moved into the master bedroom of this house, and so things are very different, but it's very aesthetically pleasing how we have things set up. So I want to make another video for that, and I will be posting that on my YouTube hopefully this week. I've also done a video on the Captain Carter Marvel Legend, who I would definitely say is one of my top figures of 2021. And my latest upload is a comparison between the Marvel Legends Psylocke or Quanin and the imported Moffex version, which was just released recently. And spoiler alert, the Moffex Psylocke does make the Marvel Legends version look like a Toy Biz figure circa sometime in the early 90s. So check that out if you're into any kind of that sort of thing. I also have a podcast Patreon, which is just a sensational she-geek. It's set up for donations to support the podcast, completely voluntary. I'm not going to go in there and check and make sure that you're you're doing it or not. <laughs> if you if you do it one month, I'm not going to go and make sure that you're still doing it the next month and thing like that. It's entirely up to you, whatever you feel like the podcast may be worth to you. Um, that is there for you to do some donations if you would like. I also have my Ko-fi, Cash App, Venmo, and PayPal all linked on my link tree, which should all appear linked among uh, other variety of fun things at the very bottom of each episode's description. And finally, I do have a Redbubble uh, store with a sticker design, or some sticker designs for sale, my favorite of which says a woman's place is in the comic shop, and it's on Redbubble, so you can get that as a shirt, a mug, a print, really whatever you want. Uh, There's a couple other things on that site and you can find them all under She Geek Shop. Finally, I do have my annual Podbean fees coming up that are going to be due at the end of this month. If you would like to donate to any of those, um, anything that was taken from donations from any source right now is going to go directly to that because it does cost money to keep this podcast up and running. With all of that business out of the way, let's go ahead and try the news. As I mentioned at the beginning, the news that I have for this episode is a bit rumory. Uh, I do have a few points of actual news, the first of which is that there is going to be an animated Scott Pilgrim project. It is in the works. Um, I mentioned this not because I am a fan of Scott Pilgrim. I genuinely... (laughs) don't particularly care about that property. Um, but I know there's a lot of people who are fans, especially of the comic or graphic novel, whatever you may want to call it. Um, so that was something that possibly re- uh, listeners might be interested in. Animated Scott Pilgrim Project coming down the line. Um, 
congratulations if you like that, I guess. Uh, but the other thing I wanted to mention here is that Warner has shifted the Blue Beetle TV series to be a movie. Now, there have been a total of three different Blue Beetles in DC Comics. This show was going to be about Jaime Reyes, the Mexican-American teenager and the third most modern Blue Beetle um, who has appeared actually, I believe, on the Young Justice animated show and a few other places since then. He's definitely one of the more recognizable Blue Beetles at this point. For this project, Warner had already cast an actor, Zolo Mariduena, I'm so sorry I probably said that wrong, as the role of Blue Beetle, no doubt Jaime Reyes. It's interesting to me, now without having looked up any professional theories as to maybe why they made this move or any real reasons, is this... There's two different perspectives that I can take on this. On what first is, is this taking away room for story expansion by what you might say foreshortening a full-length TV series into a two-hour movie. That's the first perspective. The second perspective that I take on this is, is this Warner's response to how not a one of their characters or heroes of color have a DC movie? They have TV shows. Black Lightning, Batwoman, who they had to create as a new character of color, still kept her in TV. We were going to have a cyborg movie, but we all know how that went. But you can see how there is this amazing room for criticism to Warner and the DC people for keeping their characters of color off the big screen and just making sure they stay on TV. Um, this announcement of shifting the Blue Beetle TV series into a movie, to my knowledge, is the first project where they have a character of color as the lead in a DC movie. Um, I'll have to look up some more info on this, see if there's anything interesting that I hear. Um, but right now, those are the two positions that I can take on this, the two different perspectives. They are, one is definitely negative and one is definitely positive. So uh, I guess we'll just have to wait and see how things go in the future to decide what the reasoning was behind this move for real. And that leaves us with the rumors of which I have many. So starting off, today, just a few hours ago, was released a candid photo, not, yeah, candid photo of an apparent Batman mural being set up in Glasgow for the filming of the Batgirl movie. People are saying that this is the Michael Keaton Batman um, in the mural and it's Robin next to him and this will probably be Gotham or Burnside or something. Um, funny, is Glasgow a place they film a lot? It must be. Um, very odd choice in my opinion. I'd be curious to know why they're filming in Glasgow and not like Atlanta or something. Um, maybe it's because they're avoiding Atlanta due to those Georgia laws that a lot of uh, companies are trying to avoid Georgia as a protest, which I also agree with. But Point being, so this picture shows um, a basically what looks like kind of a modernized Keaton Batman uh, with actually a young, very young Robin next to him. Um, and you see the, the picture they're putting up 
the Robin has his face scratched off a little bit, so I'm sure there's going to be some kind of dark mystery behind that. Um, and the Keaton Batman, assuming that it is Michael Keaton, portraying that particular Batman that we're seeing in the photo, has white eyes. I know that's something that um, a lot of crit critics, and there were a lot of critiques about previous Batman movies and franchises not giving him the white eyes under the mask. Um, and now I guess supposedly they're going to be saying that the Keaton Batman had that in this Batgirl universe. Now, all of that being said, you still have to know the Batman and Robin figures, mm, pictures <laughs> on that mural appear to be taken directly from, let's see, the Batman one was from a statue and the Robin one was from a page of a comic. Uh, pretty much direct grabs of those two images put onto this mural uh, and put together to look like they were one image. So I'm curious uh, if this is actually going to end up being the outfits and everything that we're going to be seeing him in or having him been in the past. Um, the Robin thing, like the, we didn't see Robin in that costume in those movies. Well, he never had a Robin, did he? <laughs> um, yeah, I, I'm just very... If I hadn't seen the pictures of where the apparent... Of, of how they swiped those the Batman and Robin image from a statue in a comic page, I would have been convinced that's what the Michael Keaton Batman would look like in that universe. And that's who his Robin was. But something about this is a little bit funny. Um, which is why it's here in the rumors section. Moving on, the character of Sophia Strange was reintroduced to Marvel Comics in the Wastelander stories, and there is rumors that she could be brought into the MCU next. Now, up until last week, when Wastelander's Doom number one came out with her second appearance, Sophia Strange had only ever had one single comic appearance, and that was in the comic Epic Anthology number one, alongside a number of other stories, including Sleepwalker and a story about the young Ancient One. The Sophia Strange story was going to unfold to show that she was the daughter of Doctor Strange and Clea, but this epic anthology title was cancelled and so she was never explored. Her character was never canonized, it was never really made a legitimate thing in the Marvel Universe. So having her be brought back and put in the Wastelander series is what we in the comics world call a deep cut, taking something from ancient history of comics and pulling it up and showcasing it. And that is what they've done with Sophia Strange here. And that is why people are wondering, timing wise, is this, you often get a lot of comic characters who appear in the MCU and the comic at the same time, you get a resurgence of them in the comic and then they pop up in the MCU or vice versa. You get them also, they pop up in the MCU and then the popularity grows. And so they put them back in the comic for the first time since whenever it goes both ways. Um, so for example, one of my, one of my personal theories 
if Wyatt Wingfoot was to show up in the upcoming She-Hulk comic series, I would actually place very high value bets that he will be showing up in this She-Hulk Disney Plus TV series, just because he is that kind of older character making a modern resurgence, his popularity growing a little bit. Um, I'm getting off topic here, but Sophia Strange, um, if you happen to know where you can get a copy of that epic anthology number one, that may end up being a big ticket item come Multiverse of Madness's release. Another fairly big rumor regarding Multiverse of Madness is that Black Bolt will be appearing in that movie as well. Um, the reason that we're getting so many of these rumors right now, when the movie's only a few months to being coming out, is because over the past course of the past few months, Marvel has been doing an, a terrifying amount of reshoots for this movie. Um, apparently the initial crowd response when they were doing their viewings was that there wasn't enough. Um, so they're apparently going to put literally the kitchen sink included in this. Um, so that kind of scares me a little bit. Um, but this blackboard rumor has me very curious because a, we already had <laughs> kind of an MCU black bolt. Oh man. I love the Inhumans. I think that they're really cool. I'm not going to go about that, on about that. I just really like the Inhumans. Trust me. I could not make it through a single episode of that Inhumans TV show. And I was watching it for free. I didn't pay for Can you believe people paid to see that in theaters? Can you believe that? <sighs> Getting off track again. Um, so this rumor has me curious because we do have a... Black Bolt actor who did play Black Bolt in a Marvel project. <laughs> um, but also, Black Bolt also just made his comic resurgence after a number of years of the Inhumans being entirely gone from the comics. Black Bolt has made his first reappearance in the comics since the series titled Death of the Inhumans. <laughs> no joke. Um, with this rumor popping up at the same time, I find that to be a bit too much of a coincidence. Uh, as I was just saying about Sophia Strange, characters who pop up in the comics out of nowhere when there's rumors about them coming into a movie, it's usually true. Um, just like how when you have a character who's brought into the movie, they put them in the comics because they try and keep those things aligned so that the popularity builds off of each other, you know? Um, as a third point there, actually, Black Bolt is historically a member of the Illuminati, which I hate to admit does also make another reason that he, this could be a legitimate rumor. Um, I say, unfortunately, because I want a female Illuminati. That has been what I have been betting on since these rumors started about the Illuminati showing up in the MCU. Um, but if it's Black Bolt who's showing up before Medusa or before um, anybody else really big that we're hoping... We're getting rumors about Black Bolt before we're getting rumors about Clea. That's a little bit... Hmm. Peeving. <laughs> um, so it definitely could be totally possible. And again, any of these characters that could appear in Multiverse of Madness... Um, 
if the, if all of these rumors end up being true, it could literally be just a flash across the screen, the screen where you see that universe for a second and then it's gone. Doesn't mean that we're, we we could have Black Bolt in here. We could have everything in here in the movie doesn't mean that we're getting it developed or really seeing more than a moment of it. So that's another thing to remember when we hear these rumors. All of this is really just Marvel movies. I Marvel movie rumors, I just realized. Uh, the next rumor we have is that Valkyrie, played by Tessa Thompson, may be appearing in the Marvel's movie, which is coming out early 2023, I believe. Um, this is a, another interesting point for me. Um, I have a personal theory that the Valkyrie that Tessa Thompson plays in the MCU is um, part, not based off of, but she is the basis of the Valkyrie who was recently added to the Marvel Comics universe known as Runa. There is also a Valkyrie who appeared, I believe, in Exiles number two, who is supposedly the MCU Valkyrie. I am unsure if... No, this isn't related to the Marvels at all, sorry, but I am unsure if <laughs> the Valkyrie who appears in Exiles number two ends up being the same Valkyrie as Aruna. I have not read that issue myself. It seems to be pretty hard to track down, um, but... I just think that it's very interesting that they this character Aruna has been popping up and gaining all of this tread in uh, the Mighty Valkyries and over there with the Marvel Comics stuff. And we know that Valkyrie from the MCU is getting a really big role in Thor Love and Thunder this year, this summer. Um, so, you know, I maybe we'll get some developments on both those characters that'll be really interesting now. That could be how she gets led into being in the Marvels movie. Um, uh, there really isn't any connection in the comics between uh, Valkyrie and any of the the Marvels characters who are going to be in the Marvels movie um, between Carol, Monica, and Kamala. Uh, there's really no connection there. The, the closest connection that that. Um, the Brunhilde Valkyrie in the comics, who is the main Valkyrie in the comics, has to them, the closest thing would be that she's a defender and she's friends with characters who have been Avengers. That would probably be the closest connection. As for Runa, I don't think Runa has even met a single one of those Marvel's characters. Um, so definitely not the character in Exiles number two, definitely not that Valkyrie. Uh, so trying to figure out why she would be in that Marvel's movie, the Tessa Thompson Valkyrie from the MCU. Honestly, the very first thing that I thought of was how hard people shipped her and Carol Danvers. Um, I'm not sure why, but they just really, people like really got hard on that train of, of shipping uh, Carol Danvers, Captain Marvel and Tessa Thompson. Well, um, what's what? what? Uh, the Brie Larson, Captain Marvel, and the Tessa Thompson Valkyrie. People were, like, super into them being, like, in gay love, but... That, which is, I guess, fine, but it's so random. Like, they don't interact. Like, I don't know how they came up with that ship, but whatever. Um, that's the only thing I can think of, legitimately, that would make her a connection. 
Okay, I take that back. There is one other thing that could be happening. We could be getting a proper A-Force in the Marvel's movie. That would be another reason to have random, seemingly random female superhero characters in that movie. That would be pretty sick, too. Um, but but I don't really know. This, again, unsan- unsubstantiated rumors. The next rumor uh, is a Sony Marvel rumor that they are working on a team movie, which will be featuring... The lineup of Black Cat, Silver Sable, Silk, Jackpot, and Spider-Woman. We have had rumors about a Black Cat movie and a Silk team-up. Earlier it was Black Cat, Silk team-up. Or sorry, Black Cat, Silver Sable team-up. A Silk movie and a Spider-Man movie. And there were in 2020 rumors. Very, very... It was actually an announcement. It wasn't rumors. There was an announcement that they were planning a Jackpot movie. Jackpot being... Let's see. um, Let me make sure I get this right. Jackpot is a mother who received powers being accidentally exposed to an experimental serum. So that group, Black Cat, Silver Sable, Silk, Jackpot, Spider-Woman, they are, I guess what you would call the Sony-owned spider women um i think that would be the group that they would gather up and that's all of their female properties would they actually put this movie out as a team movie for these characters no i think they would put out a black cat silver sable movie a silk movie a jackpot movie or a spider woman movie and the other characters would be in it i don't think they're gonna put a advertise this being the team from the start especially to an audience who has I'm sure pretty much no idea who Silver Sable and Jackpot, probably not Silk either, are. None of those characters. I mean, Spider-Woman you can pretty much figure out through context. Black Cat, for the most part, self-explanatory. But Silk, Jackpot, and Silver Sable have a little bit more explanation you would need. (laughs) Um, So I'm not sure if that would be really a smart move to dump those characters in at the same time to introduce them all at the same time. But then again, we're talking about Sony. So what do I know? The last rumor I have in the news section, the last bit of news period, uh, is involving Black Panther 2 Wakanda Forever. This is spoiler alert, potentially, for what may or may not be the plot of the movie. Uh, Very, 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 very basically. So how it says it goes is, obviously T'Challa has died through unknown reasons. They hold a tournament to find the next Black Panther. Shuri supposedly wins. Meanwhile, Wakanda and Atlantis are at war. Namor is supposed to be introduced and have the same amount of scream time as Black Panther did in Civil War. And the characters of Atuna and Namora are meant to be introduced. And finally, Doctor Doom is meant to be teased at the end of the movie or introduced at the end of the movie. Unsure, because it's all just rumors. But if you needed any reason to be excited for that movie, there you go. Um, It's been so long that we've had these Wakanda Atlantis rumors that there's no way that's not going to happen. There's no way. It's like having the all three spider bros in No Way Home. There was no way that wasn't going to be a thing. Those rumors were so long. (laughs) Atlantis is going to be in Wakanda forever. That is the fact that you can take away from this. Alrighty, we are on to the comic book pick list. The first chunk of the pick list was things from the last week of December. We're going to talk Harley Quinn number 10, including hashtag Poison Ivy Watch. 
Death of Doctor Strange number four, The Human Target number three, Swamp Thing, Green Hell number one, and Timeless number one, which by the way, uh, on the last episode I recommended, you should check out that Timeless number one cover that has Miss Minutes on it because that's her first cover appearance and she's an MCU created character that usually ends up being a pretty big deal coming from cinema to, or TV in this case, to comics. Same thing happens when it happens for DC, it's a big deal. I hope you went out and listened to me because that comic is going for around $40 now for a, what, $7 comic initially? So the resale value is strong. I was totally right about that one. Anyway, <laughs> let's talk Harley Quinn number 10. So uh, this is going to be our the wrap up of the hashtag Poison Ivy watch for 2021. And after all of that, after everything that DC put Harley and Ivy through and officially announcing they're together after all of that pussyfooting. After all of that, they have broken them up. <laughs> so what is it with, with DC not being able to commit to gay couples? First, it was refusing to let them even be together and be queer. Uh, then it was refusing to show them kissing. And now they're broken up immediately after having found each other again. This feels like them also trying to force Ivy to be a hero, which does not really fit for her character. If anything, she is an anti-hero with very complicated morality. She would save a child from drowning in a river, but she would kill the CEO who orders the destruction of a botanical park for a parking lot. So she's not necessarily evil, she's just her own version of Batman. You know, Batman gets to take out CEOs who do crime and people on the street breaking the law who have mental health issues and really need help, but Ivy can't. Oh, right, yes, that that's what we call Queen of Fables syndrome. Women aren't allowed to be overpowered, alive, and sane. You get to pick two out of those. Just two. I also really don't like how Ivy was written uh, like a very flippant hothead. She can be a hothead, I think, but she's always smart, First. She's also not the kind of person or being to go spur of the moment diamond thieving. That is something Selena would do. Ivy would tag along and watch out for plants along the way. She wasn't ever the ringleader like this, and she certainly wasn't ever stupid enough to pull a move like that to someone she cares about, which has been established on both points there. So they're going to take this and I guess make it as an excuse to completely rewrite her character into being a hero, which I, I, I do not blame Stephanie Phillips for that move or for breaking them up. There is an easy way to be able to tell when something that you're reading in a comic is, if you're familiar with the comic at least, is a direction from editorial as opposed to where the author wants to take it. You can tell when a writer's heart isn't in something. Um, so I'm not gonna shit on Stephanie Phillips at all. Um, she's been doing a fantastic job with the series. I definitely feel like this is the direction that editorial is just trying to get her to take Ivy and that's just what they had to have her do to get that this phase to be able to move her on to whatever's coming next. Um, so I'm not really happy with that for two reasons, the breaking up and the character twisting that's happening. Um, but more importantly than our reader's displeasure, um, as you may also be unpleased with that, is being a human being and having empathy and 
understanding that this isn't for you. This is for um, CEOs and things to make money off of when it comes down to it. Um, I was very, very displeased to find out that Stephanie Phillips has been getting insane real-life harassment and threats after that issue where she broke up Harley and Ivy. Again, I can bet I, 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 she did not make that decision. That was not her decision. I can guarantee you that. That is editorial. Anytime something weird like this happens where the fans aren't really happy with how it happened, that is usually editorial. This is not specifics with how it went down. This is the entire, the, the main point of it. Uh, and that is editorial's job, is to big, do the big overall points of things. Um, so anyway, <laughs> was very uh, displeased to find out that Stephanie Phillips has been getting all kinds of threats. Um, and to make matters worse, she had been hospitalized over the holidays and came out of the hospital to discover all of those threats and horrible things and harassment online. Um, and in her own words... Um, this was something that she wrote about it, and I cannot, cannot say this loud enough. She, or, I cannot emphasize this enough. She says, And this is in no way saying criticism shouldn't exist, but caring about those fictional characters to the point where there is harassment of real people and attempting to inflict real pain isn't acceptable. Isn't acceptable okay that's if you have if you are tweeting a writer about something that you don't like in a comic take a step back <laughs> um it's probably not worth it um just don't <laughs> this uh, be a sane person on the internet as much as you can and try not to harass creators of comics who are getting told from CEOs who they haven't even met how to do their jobs because that's just how capitalism works. I'm getting on a tangent now about capitalism. Let's move on. Death of Doctor Strange number four of five was another one that came out. Whew, that was quite a rant there. Um, spoiler alert, if you want to know who the murderer of Doctor Strange is, that would be Kaisalius. Uh, he set up Mordo to look guilty because he hates him. <laughs> we have after all of that is discovered. Well, really, um, Young Strange figures that out, and then he sets up this whole thing to out him, where you have Young Strange, Clea, and Magic, of all people, gathering uh, all the players of this mystery at Umar's new domain to confront him. But just then, the three mothers and the child arrive to feast. Interestingly, this issue confirms, although it was last said that Clea was in the purple dimension, it says that she is now the Sorcerer Supreme of the Dark Dimension. Although, that's cool. Frustratingly, she does not have the Flames of the Faltine, aka the Flames of Power, that encircled the Sorcerer Supreme of the Dark Dimension's head. That is why Dormammu's head is flames, is because those are the Flames of the Faltine that um, shows he is the Sorcerer Supreme of the Dark Dimension. When Clea, and likewise, actually, Umar, had their times as Sorcerer Supreme in the past, they both had crowns of flames encircling their heads. Why is that not a thing anymore? She's supposed to be source. This is an established thing in the continuity, in the main continuity. Why are we suddenly ignoring it? The, 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 it's frustrating. <laughs> they, they've established this. The continuity in editorial is very frustrating. 
you have established this. <laughs> Why is it not there? Ugh, it's just a little bit annoying when it starts to feel like you know the story better than the creative team. But at least it was mentioned here that Umar is her mother, which is far more than was mentioned the last time they interacted, which was a travesty. Also, Umar is back in her classic look, which is far better, in my opinion, um, than whatever those strips of fabric across her bust were. So, uh, still doing really well with Death of the Doctor Strange. I'm, aside from the weird continuity errors, I'm really digging it. It's, it's very well done. The Human Target number three is number three of 12 for Tom King's series. In this issue, Gary Gardner takes issue with Christopher Chance hanging out with Ice, who is his ex. Now you have to remember here, Guy Gardner is the gay Green Lantern. Ice is his ex, sure, but you know, he comes out later and then you understand why he's so possessive of her. <laughs> Um, there is some really great inner monologuing that Chance does as he beats up Guy a few times. Well, not beats up, but he just beats him at what they're doing basically a few times. Um, and then in the end, he calls up Hal Jordan, who is the only person Guy is ever afraid of. Anytime Guy gets in trouble, Hal shows up and Guy gets it back in line. So Hal takes Guy's ring saying that he's got to take this for a time to give him a break or he takes it forever. Uh, so then Chance knocks Guy out, with, now that he doesn't have the ring, and Hal reveals himself to be Luigi, <laughs> Chance's friend, with a mask. So that's pretty funny. They tricked him. Uh, Booster Gold, also insisting that his bagels aren't pre-toasted, is... <laughs> Tom King had the kite man, hell yeah, and now he's got Booster Gold and his pre-toasted bagels. How I don't know how he keeps making these iconic tiny little character bits for these very strange, in my opinion, B and C list, for don't be like C and D list, DC characters. And they also had the best description of Booster Gold ever. He's a boring guy from the future who had nothing going for him, so he stole a bunch of technology and went to the past to become a hero. 10 out of 10 description of Booster Gold. I love it. And people really, really had an issue with how Guy Gardner was written in this issue of Human Target, um, it's because those are the Guy Gardner, like, stands, the stalker fans. Um, I think most people would agree <laughs> that based on all of Guy Gardner's history, that was a very accurate depiction of him that we saw. <laughs> and that's why his fans are mad. <laughs> Swamp, Thring, Swamp Thing, Green Hell number one of three was fantastic. Um, it is taking place some great distance in the future where the last remnants of humanity live in swamps and scrounge for scraps to survive. The parliaments of the green, the red, and the rot confer and agree that life has to be wiped out in order to start over, so they create their own Swamp Thing. It is a horrifying monster that starts slaughtering the village, who turns to the, quote, man in the lighthouse. Turns out that is no other than John Constantine. He summons up the soul of Alec Holland, the Swamp Thing, uh, to defend them. And Alec is not happy because he was at peace and now he's back and angry and gotta do some killing. I have no idea how the series is going to go, but I really, really dug this first issue. And Timeless, again, uh, if you have access to that Miss Minutes cover... For cover price, definitely pick that up because it's going for a lot of money online. Um, the predictions that this 
issue set up for the coming year slash years at Marvel. We have Dormammu's son beats him in some way. Ben Riley goes to Hollywood. There is a new Iron Fist. There is a new era for the Punisher, which I did already talk about in another episode. Moon Knight or sorry, <laughs> uh, the moon is apparently going to get wounded in the Reckoning War at Fantastic Four. I don't care very much about that. Orcus is going to win over the X-Men. Young Avengers, I think, are going to take down the Thunderbolts, I think. Iron Man keeps his godhood. Cap gets taken out by Bucky, kind of again, kind of, sort of. Uh, MJ and Storm... I'm not really sure who that kid is. MJ and somebody become Spider-Woman and Black Panther. Somebody with white hair. So I'm not really sure. Um, and the King of Hearts returns, which we did kind of already know um, due to solicitations for She-Hulk in March. There's also going to be something happening with Ravencroft and the prediction that Donny, well, not Donny Cates made, but uh, that Thor saw in one of the first issues of Donny Cates' Thor issues of Thanos with the Infinity Hammer, yes, that is a Mjolnir, with the Infinity Gems embedded in it, is going to come true. That is another one that was, I believe, a second or third printing of that issue, where they have that page as the cover art. Uh, that is another one that is going up in value that I bought back when it first came out, because I predicted that was going to go up in value when that comes to pass, and look at that, I am, again, correct. You guys gotta listen to me with my spec stuff here, my speculation. I know what I'm talking about, like, a third of the time, at least. <laughs> and that leads us into the second half of our picks. This was stuff from this past comic week, coming out the 4th and the 5th of January. Starting off, we are gonna talk Dark Knights of Steel number 3. This is just, each issue just gets better and better. And we're with this issue, we got some really cool little teases for characters that we might see in this version of reality um, coming up very soon. So the the main event that happens here that kicks things off for this issue is that a piece of kryptonite falls from the sky. Um, very much like the star falling in Neil Gaiman's Stardust, anybody who witnesses this happen um, knows that the first person to get there is gonna be like super powered or whatever, like gonna have some great thing whatever it is we haven't quite learned what they know about this stuff on the sky yet but everybody wants it that's what we know um there is a brief moment where bruce mentions to harley the jester um or they call her harleen is it harley or harleen quinn they call her quinn um he suggests that she go reach out to the quote lady of the forest who after about three seconds of thinking i decided was probably poison ivy of this realm um and i cannot wait to see that we don't see it in this issue hoping we see it soon because i can't even imagine what um a poison ivy designed by yasmin putri for this dark knights of steel universe would be like oh we saw a little bit of a few other characters like green arrow and stuff that is so so sick i am so excited i love poison ivy um uh, zara Jorel, if you remember she killed the uh, the prince of the storm's kingdom in the last issue um now she kills in this issue an army of metal men which i I'm not sure who they are referencing. Um, I'm honestly not sure. But back on Themyscira, uh, we knew this was coming as 
Diana was eventually going to find out what her girlfriend did to their ally's son. Um, Lois gives Hippolyta the news of the prince's death. The king comes for a visit because obviously the consort of Diana has killed his son, uh, but he's not allowed on Themyscira's shores because he's a bro. He's a dude. He's a man. He got bald, so he's not allowed to be there. Um, so they talk on the ship and uh, when Hippolyta learns what happened, they decide to take the side of the Kingdom of Storms. Diana is freaking out because her girlfriend's the one who's the issue here. And so she takes off on a Pegasus to try and prevent the war from even happening. However, um, I guess behind her or whatever, as the ship leaves the Mascara later, the, the King of the Storms is attacked by Zara again and she kills him. So that's not going to go well. <laughs> At the end of the issue, um, Bruce and Alfred come across the kryptonite, which is what fell from the sky. And when Bruce has like a reaction to it, he thinks that Alfred doesn't know he's the son of what's his name who just got killed in the other issue, in the first issue. Alfred's like, oh, I got to tell you the truth. So clearly there's a lot more to whatever is happening, whatever Bruce's stories is, or we're going to find out in the next issue, um, which is gonna be so awesome and hopefully we get to see the lady of the forest as well captain marvel number 35 so the power being that carol created from within herself however that was it seems to be its own entity possibly birthed from her having passed through the planet that apparently is full of marvel's dna it's crazy comic stuff what else is new um, it gives itself a variation of Carol's former binary suit towards the end of the issue, which means that it has access to Carol's memories too. Not really sure what that means yet. I just really, really, really don't want this to be an entity that turns evil. I need a powerful babe creature who is not shunned by society. Thank you. <coughs> Excuse me. There's enough um, women beating on women enough in this comic series. In any case, the issue ends with a bunch more people in the the evil mind control suit showing up to fight them. But then the Avengers and the Guardians of the Galaxy show up as well. So I am hoping that this ends with Phyla and Moondragon embracing and accepting one another again because friggin' Al Ewing was putting them through the ringer in Guardians for some goddamn reason. Um, and we know that the next issue is going to be um, somebody somebody bad from this arc is going to be loose on earth i think at the end of this uh i'm hoping that it is the fake marvel who was off on the loose somewhere now and really hoping that it is not this new binary looking character in dirtbag rapture number four our favorite stoner cat has teamed up with the angel type ghosts uh, which remember, there are not actually angels or demons. They are just they just call themselves angels and demons. Um, but it turns out that they just want to literally eviscerate the angels. They want to literally eviscerate other ghosts to eat the parts of them that Cat's mind touched, which is all very mysterious and dangerous, leading Cat to reject both the angels and the demons. Uh, so knowing that they will come to collect her soul in the morning, she finds her dreamscape ghost friends who are somehow breaking out of her dreamscape with the theory that their creator must be on the other side because they're already dead, right? So Kat is like, whatever, let's screw this, let's try it. And she goes through the hole in the wall first. She finds what she calls the farm where all of those dead dogs go that your parents lie to you about when they can't talk to you about death. 
uh, which is pretty funny. And it's being run by a, um, a slime monster with many faces. I'm not really sure how to describe it other than that, but I love this weird shit. The series is so bizarre and kooky. I really thought this was going to be the last issue. Turns out, nope. Really happy to find that out because the way this ended, it'll be back in February and I cannot wait. I don't know what the hell just happened, but it is wacky and I love it. Inferno number four, the final issue of Jonathan Hickman's time at Marvel Comics, specifically for the X-Men. Uh, doesn't look like he's going to be coming back ever, <laughs> but um, here's what we had for this wrap-up. Destiny and Mystique took away Moira's powers and prepared to kill her so that the timeline doesn't reset, solving that issue. But remember Cypher. Cypher knows everything, and he interrupts and threatens to tell everybody what they're doing, which is breaking a cardinal law of Krakoa now that Moira is human, you can't kill humans. So they leave her be as a human. The Quiet Council gets filled in on what was all going on with her, Xavier Magneto, and all of that crap, and it's decided that they have to keep all of these secrets to themselves. Remember, one of the members of the Quiet Council now is Col is Colossus. He is literally a Russian spy. Literally a Russian spy, so uh, that'll be interesting. And the issue does end very, very ominously, saying that they built these walls to keep everyone else out, but now they are stuck inside together forever. <laughs> Very ominous, and it makes me think of Undiscovered Country, which is a pretty good series. I fell behind on it, but um, if you have a time, definitely check that one out. Pantha number one was a pickup that I just kind of felt like reading and enjoyed, which I did not expect very much at all. Uh, she, Pantha, was an Egyptian queen who was jealous of her husband's baby mama giving him a son, so she wants to kill the pair. Um, child and mother flee, and she lies to the goddess Sekhmet to get her, uh, to give her all the power, all the vision from the eyes of cats of all of Egypt, and she uses that vision to have them slaughter all of the newborn sons in the country, in the land. Sekhmet, of course, becomes infuriated by this and curses Pantha to live with the displeasure of her victims and the rage of Sekhmet, ever flipping between um, being a panther and being a woman. So I don't honestly remember <laughs> what the plot was aside from the description of what happened to her in the past and how she lives and everything. Um, but that part was pretty cool, so I'm probably going to check out the second issue at least. Down to the last two here. Imposter number three was the finale. What it all comes down to is the detective and Batman face to face. She learns who he is and is rightfully infuriated. Bruce knows he messed up, but the imposter is caught. He's a police officer himself and Bruce is going to go to jail for being Batman. Interestingly, one of the first things that is said from the detective when she finds out who Bruce is or who Batman is, I suppose, um, is that he could be doing more. He has money. He's a rich guy. Why isn't he doing more? Um, and they actually answer it. He explains that his trust fund uh, only allows him a certain amount of money per year, which effectively solves for this story one of the biggest critiques of Batman of all time, which I don't think anybody has ever bothered to do before. So, excellent work. Really, really fascinating, uh, satisfying series, by the way. Imposter, super satisfying. Daisy number two of five. This is... Um, the last issue, well, the first issue ended with, um, the guy who, like, takes in all the local orphans, um, shooting the local woman who was looking for her son in the head. Um, 
Daisy in this issue wakes her. She revives her in a cabin of sorts. We learn that Daisy has the power to wake the dead no matter what state their physical body is in. It's pretty horrifying, actually. Um, I think it is her or possibly one of the children who plants a spell in the old man's closet. He's, like, stealing kids and he's, like, super evil. Um, the whatever the spell was in the closet, it ends up getting all these ravens to attack him, pick him to pieces, also pretty horrifying. Um, and now Daisy is the ringleader of all these children. It's oddly creepy. <laughs> and I'm not sure what the point is going to be, but it's pretty creepy and I like it. All right, we've got this last section to cover before we get to Book of Boba Fett, if you're listening chronologically. And this is the pull list for the coming week. We've got a number of number ones that I'm going to read you the solicitations for, but the rest are just going to be pretty... Oh gosh, they're mostly number ones this week. Um, the rest will just kind of cover as much as we can. So we're going to have Hellstone number one, Quad number one, Rain number one, The Scorch number one, We Ride Titans number one, Daredevil Woman Without Fear number one, The Death of Doctor Strange, Bloodstone number one, and Marvel's Voices Heritage number one. Whew. Then we have Dark Ages number four of six, Spider-Woman 18, Marauders 27 easy enough. So yeah, they're, they're, it's pretty much all number ones. But there's also a bunch of indie comics, and I haven't had too many indies on my pulls recently, so this is pretty satisfying. Coming from Christopher Hastings and Pascal Colano, the team from uh, Sonia, Vers Sonia Versal is Hell Sonia number one. It says, Welcome to Hell, Sonia. She's the queen of damnation. She lords over the fiery pit of eternal hunger and suffering, but now she's had enough of this evil shit. She will blind, she will bind together lost souls and rove the multiverse to fill Hell's belly with only the most deserving of its punishment. If someone so wicked is beset upon you, if you're desperate enough, if no one else can help, maybe your prayer will be heard by Hell Sonia. I'm not really sure what that means it's going to be about, but it sounds like it'll be fun. <laughs> Quad number one is coming from Eduardo Scal. There's going to be at least three issues. I'm not really sure what its long-term plans are. What it says is, in the last decades of the 21st century, a massive solar storm hit planet Earth, destroying all technology in its way. Global communications were lost, nuclear reactions, reactors collapsed, the oh my gosh, the climate suffered the worst drastic changes, and financial systems were gone. The survivors had to adapt to the harsh new reality. New societies were built over the ruins of those that had crumbled. Four generations have passed. The mechanic Tara and her black cat Elvis quickly accept or accept a quick and simple repairing job in the middle of nowhere. There's something odd about this job. It's never really simple. I'm always in for a um, black cat buddy comic. Definitely picking that up. Rain number one, which will be of five issues. It says the first in Chris Ryle and Ashley Wood's new Zigzy publishing imprint of titles at Image Comics. So I guess that is going to be, um, yeah, an imprint, kind of like how DC does Young Animal or Black Label. Zigzy, I guess, is going to be uh, the imprint for Chris Ryle and Ashley Wood. It says the series on a seemingly normal August day in Boulder, Colorado. The skies are clear and Honeysuckle Speck couldn't be happier. She's finally moving in with her girlfriend Yolanda, but their world is literally torn apart when dark clouds roll 
in and release a downpour of nails, splinters of bright crystals that shred the skin of anyone not safely undercover. Rain makes vivid this escalating apocalyptic event as the deluge of nails spreads across the country and around the world, threatening everything young lovers Honeysuckle and Yolanda hold dear. So begins a gripping five-issue presentation of New York Times bestselling author Joe's Hill's acclaimed novella adapted by rising stars david boer from the series canto zoe thurgood from the impending blindness of billy scott and chris o'halloran from ha ha it's an anthology series called ha ha i'm not just saying ha ha the scorch number one is coming from image it's a bit of a double-edged sword, if I'm being honest, which I'll explain in a second. It's written by Sean Lewis with art by Steven Segovia, who was of the Hellions fame, if you read that series recently at Marvel. There's a threat so big that no single hero can stop it. The formation of this new supergroup is the only thing standing in its way. Members will include Spawn, Redeemer, Gunslinger, Medieval Spawn, and She-Spawn, with many more heroes waiting in the wings. And it has a register pitch, which is so McFarlane. An Avengers-esque ensemble of superheroes and the latest entry in Spawn's universe. Hook readers of King Spawn and Gunslinger Spawn, as well as longtime Spawn fans. Do those exist? I guess they probably exist. Somebody's going to try and beat me up for saying that. <laughs> so the... <coughs> Pardon me. The reason that this is a bit of a double-edged sword is because of Todd McFarlane. Um, I've mentioned it a few times before that Todd McFarlane straight up refuses to work with women in any way. Um, so I have a really hard time. <laughs> he's also not a good writer. I'm sorry, but he's not. He hasn't been a good writer, I think, ever. Um... The, the best thing, in my opinion, that ever came out of his Spawn creation. I mean, my favorite thing that came out of Spawn was Angela, and he didn't even create her. That was Neil Gaiman, who wrote all of her issues. So go figure. Um, I'm not a fan of Todd McFarlane. His toy line is shit. His writing is shit. Um, sure, you know, all the stuff he did for the industry blah 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 i don't think he would disagree with anything that i'm saying honestly um he rides off of his reputation for the most part and he refuses to work with women which makes me really not want to promote him as a creator which is why i straight up talk about what a shitbag he is when i talk about him um yes i'm sure he has nice qualities to his personality the way that he works with people is not one of them is not any of them so uh the scorch number one sean lewis is a great writer though so that's uh another reason why i'm kind of like i want to check it out but also fuck you todd mcfarlane we ride titans number one it comes from trace dean and sebastian Pires, which i definitely said wrong Kaiju hit hard, family hits harder. Trying to keep your family from imploding is a tall order. Kit Hobbs is about to find out it's an even taller order when that family has been plotting, ooh, piloting the titan that protects New Hyperion from Kaiju for generations. Between a spiraling, spiraling brother, a powder keg of a father, and a whole bunch of 20-story monsters, she's got her work cut out for her. What have I said before? What do we love? Big fucking monster stories. This has kaiju multiple times in the solicitation, so 
definitely checking off that box. Daredevil Woman Without Fear number one is the Chip Zarsky and Raphael De La Torre continuation of the Daredevil series for Elektra. It says, the next pulse-pounding chapter in the saga of New York City's, guard City's Guardian Devil, this time starring Elektra as Daredevil. Joined by Raphael De La Torre, Chip Zarsky continues his landmark run and the Daredevil story that spins directly out of the shocking revelations in the pages of Devil's Reign. Elektra is the world's deadliest assassin, and she's taken the vow not to kill. Someone puts themselves directly in her path with deadly consequences. What would you expect from Marvel from the Marvel Universe's greatest hunter? Which, yes, is her title. I really, I've very thoroughly been enjoying how Chip Zartsky has been writing Elektra. Um, I guess you could call him the opposite of, um, Todd McFarlane, in that sense. Uh, okay, Death of Doctor Strange Bloodstone number one is the Death of Doctor Strange tie-in for Elsa Bloodstone. It's going to be written by Teeny Howard with art by Iguara. It says, Elsa and the family Bloodstone. Who better to defend Earth from magical invaders than the monster hunter, Elsa Bloodstone? Elsa is the best there is at what she does, tough, skilled, and clever enough to handle any problem, except her brother, Colin. The siblings will have to put their issues aside not only to protect Earth, but also to welcome the latest addition of the Bloodstone clan, their long-lost sister. Her awesome set of powers and unique blood gem have placed a target on her back, and the worst horrors from beyond the realm are on the hunt. How this has to do with Doctor Strange dying, don't know, but I guess we'll find out. And the last one we're going to read the solicit for, Marvel's Voices Heritage, number one. A hit voices series oh, the hit voices series continues with an extraordinary array of indigenous talent. Although this is not the first indigenous that they've done. So why is it number one? Why is it like number two or three? Whatever. Year two of Marvel's Voices kicks off with the celebration of indigenous characters and talent. Get the full story behind River, the mysterious stranger from the pages of Rebecca Rowan Horse's new Echo series. Discover Snowguard's greatest hopes and fears in a tale by celebrated filmmaker Nyla in Inuksuk, and many more reveals to come. New and established creators explore the wonders of the Marvel Universe. Catch the next big wave here. This is coming from... Uh, writers, Nyla Inuksuk. Oh gosh. Yeah, that's right. Inuksuk. I just spelled it wrong. Rebecca Rowanhorse, Stephen Paul Judd, and Bobby Wilson. I do not have the list of artists, unfortunately. Dark Ages number four of six is coming out from Ton Taylor and Ivan Coelho. We left the last issue where they're going to try and attack Europe, but um that seems to be a plan that apocalypse knows about so it's probably not going to go well spider woman number 18 is a devil's reign tie-in coming from carla pacheco and perry perez and marauders number 27 is the final issue by jerry duggan and mateo loli now i love this marauders by jerry duggan i think he writes the characters very well why do i feel the opposite about that for when he writes the x-men truly don't like it but i love marauders so, moving on. And now the moment you've all been waiting for. The Book of Boba Fett premiere. Uh, okay, starting off with chapter one. This episode was titled Stranger in a Strange Land, and it was directed by the one, the only, Robert Rodriguez. Yeah! yeah. Okay, uh, this was super cool. I, I really, 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 really enjoyed the first episode. 
but believe it or not, I enjoyed the second one more. Um, so let's talk about the first one first, obviously. The story here is split into two parts, and that's going to be covering the whole show, probably. It's going to be filling in what happened after Boba was taken by the Sarlacc pit, and then the ongoing story moving forward in what you might call modern times. Current times, not modern, because that's whatever. You get what I mean. When we first see Boba in the show, he is in the back-to-tank, healing and dreaming the memories of his life. We see Kamino, young Boba, and then how he survived the Sarlacc pit. Now, <laughs> one of my favorite things about this episode is how it actually aligns with Patton Oswalt's notorious Star Wars filibuster from Parks and Recreation. Now, are you ready for this? If you've seen the episode, here's what Patton Oswalt says in Parks and Rec. We pan down from the twin sons of Tatooine. We are now close on the mouth of the Sarlacc pit. After a beat, a gloved Mandalorian armor gauntlet of Boba Fett grabs onto the sand outside the Sarlacc pit, and the feared bounty hunter pulls himself from the maw of the sand beast. And that is exactly what we see happen. He's not from the mouth, he pulls himself from the sand. After we see him in its belly with acid and gases and teeth and all that i'm sure on the way down he wakes up he sees a dead stormtrooper in in the belly he he gets the oxygen tank or whatever from it and so he can breathe for a second and then he punches it through to whatever's on the other side of the stomach i guess um inside the beastie and fires his flamethrower which ignites the oxygen and that is what allows him to get out through that hole in the side of the creature uh, he is a mess. He is unconscious. He is um, just wrecked. <laughs> Jawas come by that night and take his armor. They don't care about him. They leave him for dead. The acid scar we see for the first time here is really, really bad. Um, and he is eventually saved, actually, by the Sand People, Tusken Raiders. Um, they keep him alive, or keep him from dying, really, with some kind of desert worm. Uh, and they drag him home behind them on their banthas. They tie him onto a stake at their camp along with a Rodian prisoner. We get a lot of insight into Tuscan society in these episodes, including their children who pretty much just mess around with the prisoners all day, beating on them with sticks and hassling them. At night, they are they are watched by the Tuscan Mastiff, which is kind of like an armadillo dog. And the leader of this particular village, um, it seems that there is a leader who was male and then there is a, or may possibly the head person who was male and the leader who is female. The male person just kind of sits around and watches from a distance and the female actually is the one who goes out there and does the warrior stuff and uh, is really cool and useful within their society. So take that how you will. Um, we get to the point that the we, well, we get the point that the Rodian is not going to be of use to Boba's potential escape when he is actually the one who sounds the alarm during Boba's first attape, uh, escaped, attempt at escape. Uh, so he's pretty useless, and it is not surprising that he does not make it out of this episode. Um, so the next day they are taken, or later, they're taken to harvest water. On the way, they pass a moisture farm being attacked by some kind of gang who leave their marks on the building's wall and is a shockingly similar sequence to how Luke found his uncle in episode three. In the sands of Tatooine, there are little 
egg-like plants, gourds, filled with water or liquid of some kind. One of the children, Tuscans, takes Boba and the Rodian to harvest for the day, and it really makes me wonder what Uncle Owen did for a living. Does he harvest these little pod things too? Is that what a moisture farmer is? We never really figured that one out, but it's got to be something similar to this. Uh, before too long, the Rodian digs too deep in the sand and hits a new creature of Tatooine. It's some kind of cross between like a, a bull mastiff and a crate dragon. It is a six-legged dragon thing without wings. I don't honestly know how to describe it. Um, it brings a massive fight with it, which Boba wins, of course, uh, and he does it to save the young Tuscan's life. So, and that's when the Rodian dies, of course, too. So they go back to the village. Uh, the kid has the head of the creature and is telling everybody that he killed it in one end, but the, the guy in charge clearly knows that it was Boba. Um, so he sees how he's, Boba doesn't like correct him, lets the kid take the credit. Um, and the leader of the village approaches Boba and offers him some water, no doubt, as a sign of acceptance and thanks. So we get our first actual interaction with current time Boba when Fennec Shand wakes him from his memory dreams in the back to tank. Now, we got to take a moment to appreciate Ming-Na Wen for a second because she was Mulan. She was an agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. She was in the Joy Luck Club and Street Fighter in the 90s. She voiced characters from Wreck-It Ralph and Netflix's Yasuke anime. And now she's a badass Star Wars character. I, w I wanted to say badass babe, but that does not fit Fennec at all. What a, what a killer legacy. I love that. Um, and one thing I really do also love about her character is that she is very much like Mando and Boba. She is a fighter of very few words. What she says is direct and to the point. Otherwise, much of her interaction is just through body language, nods, turns, glances, etc. It is completely fabulous. I am obsessed. So on this particular day, she and Boba are seeing the citizens or leaders or whatever of Mos Espa who are here to pay their respects to the new daimyo. Now, daimyo is a term from feudal Japan um, where they are the, uh, the great lords who are vassals of the shogun, or in modern times, they are kind of like the middlemen gang leaders. <laughs> um, of this of the area. So it was once the huts and it's now Boba. Um, and one of the gifts, notably, I wanted to make sure I mentioned, is actually a Wookiee skin or Wookiee fur, whichever way you want to go with that. Very interesting that that is a trade for that out there. Uh, there is one person who did not send a gift, just a messenger looking for a gift himself. The mayor's assistant. The mayor himself did not come and did not send tribute, and Boba does not send tribute back. There's a fair amount of doublespeak from the mayor's man saying that um, he'll be saying one thing but kind of meaning another. And while it was pointed out directly with a different tribute giver, the kind of double talk, um, that Boba was, but Boba was more familiar with that tribute giver. And so when he did that, it was like, okay, yeah, we're familiar. But this kind of double talk from this guy, it is not taken as kindly. It is definitely much more of a serious threat. Um, and they did for a little while. They had me so convinced that this mayor was going to be Kira, who was Amelia Clark's, um, character from the Solo movie, because she's all tied up with Crimson Dawn, who are popping up all over Star Wars properties lately. Uh, she would have to be, like, super old. Um, 
And, you know, eventually we find out it's not her. But anyway, I, I really thought it was... And he does say he at one point, too. So, okay, my bad. We do know the governor is a he. Okay, fine. Or the mayor. Then we get a pair of Gamorrean prisoners um, who are shown to Boba for execution. Gamorreans are the uh, green and yellow pig-looking guys. <laughs> These two were apparently loyal to the daimyos before Boba, and they're going to now be loyal to Boba as well. The next scene is a power shot of Boba, Fennec, and their new guards strutting through the town. Traditionally, it's noted that the daimyos would carry, or they would be carried through the town, but Boba is not that kind of leader, very clearly. At the cantina, over a remix of the classic jam, Boba and Fennec are looking to meet Garsa Fwip. Uh, as soon as you see the pair of half-naked Twi'leks in the room, you definitely get what this place is called, or what this place is. Um, called the Sanctuary. It is the Star Wars equivalent of an old western brothel. <laughs> they ask Boba and Fennec if they need their helmets cleaned and refer to their boss as Madame Garza, which makes the whole brothel thing, brothel thing I think a lot more obvious. He tells her that he's here to assure her that her business will continue to thrive under his watchful eye. She seems surprised by this and says farewell and their helmets are given back to them Notably, Boba's is filled with coins. As he talks to Fennec on the way out, he tells her, Jabba ruled with fear, I intend to rule with respect. He also has to earn the respect of the other people around, is the one thing I think he's missing there. But as they walk out, they are attacked by men that look like basically red ninjas with electric shields. Now, Tamora Morrison is the actor who is playing Boba Fett here. He clearly added a lot of his own Hakka spice to this fight sequence, but I will talk more about how appropriate that is later on when we get to episode two. After a long battle, the remaining red ninjas run off and Boba commands Fennec to follow, but make sure one is taken alive. Now, remember what I said about them not being over talkers. To communicate that sentiment just there about make sure you follow, but make sure one is taken alive. All he does is he just says Fennec alive. That's it. She knows what her job is. She's not a dummy. It's so cool. I love how they have that dynamic. Uh, meanwhile, the soldiers their little Gamorrean dudes take him back to the back to pod. All these years later, he's still got a lot of injuries. All that time out in the desert in the Sarlacc acid really messed him up. Now we're on to episode two of Book of Boba Fett called The Tribes of Tatooine. This episode was directed by Steph Green in her first Star Wars director project. And I gotta say, um, it may have been just the amount of delving into the cultures and societies that we did, but I definitely liked this episode better than the first. We pick back up with Fennec Shan bringing her captured red ninja back to where they are now at their little palace. The prisoner refuses to speak, but they know that he's an assassin for hire of the Order of the Night Wind. He doesn't speak until they drop him into the pit below where we saw in A New Hope the Rancor lived and um, Jabba would have it sicked on people who displeased him. And clearly the ninja guy knows what this pit is because as soon as he gets down there and they start opening up the gate, he screams out what they want him to know. He was sent by the mayor. Then they tell him uh, the Rancor is dead <laughs> and so it's time to visit the mayor. They're turned away at the mayor's house, but don't accept that, so they force their way in. Makshais is the mayor, speaking 
Ithorisi, or Ithoris, I'm honestly not sure. They have a mouth on either side of their head, um, so that's why they need a translator, because they talk in a multi-layered speech, which is fascinating, honestly. Um, he identifies, Mokshais, that is, identifies the spy immediately as a member of the Nightwind and has him shot and killed, saying that they are not allowed to operate outside of operate outside of hut space. Hut space is the exactly what it sounds like. It's the area of space that the huts command. It is independent of the empires or the republics or all of that is, is its own thing. So he is he was not supposed to leave that area. Um, so Mokshais then thanks Boba for turning him in, for which there is apparently a reward. Boba tells him he is not a bounty hunter, Shais is it or otherwise, Boba is on the throne of Java, his former employer, it's a bit of back and forth. He takes the reward as tribute anyway and reminds the mayor that he is here as the daimyo of Tatooine, uh, sorry, he is here as long as the daimyo of Tatooine deem it so. Now, unless I'm mistaken, Right there, he was using daimyo as plural. So, is that others across the planet that he's talking about? Or is that others in this local area? I want to know the dynamic. How, how does that work? The mayor's response to this is to have Boba ask himself who really sent the night wind, noting that he, the mayor, has no motive. Shais also gives advice running a family is more complicated than bounty hunting. And so he says, go to the sanctuary, uh, to go see what that means, the sanctuary being the cantina. So they go. Madame Garza, who the runner of the sanctuary, is surprised to see them because the news of the day is that the twins have returned to claim the area. They have been off on Hutta, which is the Hut homeworld, uh, doing all kinds of debauchery and enjoying all of that, which is not something I'm making up. That is straight from canon. <laughs> uh, and now they're back and they have... Uh, as the late cousins, or the cousins of the late Jabba, they have claimed the area. We hear drums announcing their imminent arrival, so everyone is drawn out so that by the time they come into view, a crowd has gathered. On a giant barge carried by at least a dozen quivering men are two huts jiggling in all their enormity. One is clearly male and one female. They are just kind of stuck there fanning themselves snacking and wiping sweat off their bodies with tiny little creatures like mops. They talk briefly with Boba, who rejects their claim. They laugh and bring out this bad mofo, Black Chrysanthemum. This is like a really cool thing that they did here. He's the Blackford Wookiee bounty hunter from the Star Wars comics who worked with both Vader and Dr. Aphra. He's a brutal fighter in both hand-to-hand -hand combat and with the bowcaster, which uh, Wookiees really love to use. And we saw Chewie had one as well. And he looks incredible. Absolutely great work from the costume and, and practical effects departments here. Um, and if you're interested in his character in the comics, his first appearance was only in 2015, so he hasn't been around too long. His first issue, first appearance issue was Star Wars Vader number one. Um, you had his origin in Star Wars number 20 in 2016, which showed how Han Solo gave him that gnarly scar that he's got on his face there. That's pretty cool, I think. Um, and his first solo story, if you want to read just him, was in Dr. Aphra Annual Number 1 in 2017. So if you want to hear any more about him, that's where you can go to find out. 
But as frightening as he is, Boba tells them, basically, listen, Jabba's gone. His underboss tried to sneak in there and take his spot, but I killed him, so it's all mine now. If you've got a problem, you're gonna have to kill me to remove me. Obviously, paraphrase. Uh, the twins decide that bloodshed is bad for business. This can be dealt with later, but they don't leave without a threat. Sleep lightly, bounty hunter. Uh, the litter, as apparently they call it, pulls out and Black Kersantan mean mugs Boba one last time before following suit. Uh, Fennec makes a comment, they're huts, we'd have to get permission if we want to kill them. It says a lot that she mentions that, because it's a joke from the Harley Quinn, well, from my perspective, it's a joke from the Harley Quinn animated show um, about how you have to finish the bloodline. <laughs> Killing one hut without permission gives you a lifetime on the run because their effect on the universe is so massive. They are a truly legendary family and you would never get away with that. So if you're going to kill one, it's got to be okay with the rest. <laughs> Another session in the back to tank, and it's another dream of the past. That's the that's the that's the final bit of the current stuff that we'll see for this episode. Boba in the past has clearly begun settling into Tuscan life. He learns to fight from their leader, who slaps him when he's wrong, and that's about the extent of the humor in this show. It's there for sure, but it is definitely a kind of dry humor. Boba is a willing student still, and in time, others gather to watch them train. On this particular day of memory, a train goes through the valley with the Tuscan tribe living in it. It's not really a train, there's no tracks, it's just the long string of huge speeder cars going super fast across the sand. The sand people get ready to shoot, but more or less just get ravaged as the cars tear by in the distance, shooting their bantha and firing at anything that they can see. When it's over, many have died, and the Tuscan weep for their dead and burn the bodies that night. When Boba spots single rider speeders heading out into town that night, he comes up with a plan. He tells the leader he'll need a gun and a stick, but he'll be back by morning with how they'll stop the train. The speeder riders have made it to a bar. It is Toshi's Station. I want to go to Toshi's Station for some power converters. Uh, they're clearly ruffians, like a uh, biker gang, but Star Wars. They steal food from a couple who are there, who I guess are looking for a night out. Fun fact, apparently the couple in that scene are two now-adult friends of Luke Skywalker who appeared in a deleted scene from A New Hope. They're not the same actors, but the actors are credited as those characters, so I guess they never left the planet. <laughs> it's kind of a fun little fact for anybody who's aware of that deleted scene. The space biker hears the man make a comment on how this isn't right when he steals his food. So they rough him up a little bit and that's when Boba makes entrance. He beats the gang of spice bakers very easily and takes all their speeders back to the Tuscan Raider village. When he tells them that they're a gift, the tribe immediately takes to tearing them apart and Boba freaks out and yells at them to, to stop. They're his and he'll teach them how to ride. This is how they're going to stop the train enter a brilliant montage of Boba teaching the Tuscans how to do things. Easily some of the genuinely funniest Star Wars material I think they have ever come out with. There is the white savior critique at this moment where a white man comes to a native tribe and solves their problems with his white man ways. That's a trope in movies and things. But I think this this definitely gets a pass on that because one, Tamora Morrison isn't a white guy, he's an indigenous New Zealander, a Maori man. And while the metaphor would be appropriate with an actual white actor or character here, it does not work out with Morrison, which is good. 
We have Tuscans on speeders going backwards on accident. We have nose diving into the sand, running into each other, and even learning how to fix the bikes. It is fantastic. Boba gets better with their fighting as well, um, but the woman leader still beats them, still beats him, but friendly like now. When the train comes next, it is time. A high-speed chase lends to a pirate, Old West-style takeover of the speeder, including hilarious, meme-worthy shots of the female leader taking out a crewman and then just popping up in his place and then popping back down. You'll know it when you see it. It made me laugh. The conductor robot yeets himself out a window as the engine overloads and then spiders off into the distance in one of the biggest surprise creepy moments I have ever experienced. After the train stops, Boba asks their leader if they carry Sansana spice from the slave mines of Kessel. That is the spice that we always hear about in Star Wars. They are. Then it gets interesting. The guys say, the, the leader of the guy says that they thought that these were uncivilized raiders and they were just trying to protect their route. After the train is stopped, Boba responds, these sand people are no longer free for you to pass. Oh, sorry. No, these sands are no longer free for you to pass. These people lay ancestral claim to the Dune Sea, and if you are to pass, a toll is to be paid to them. Any death dealt from the passing freighters will be returned tenfold. Your lives are a gesture of our civility. Basically saying later on, he says, you now travel under the protection of the Tuscans. We will give you each a black melon. You will survive on its milk like these people do. Later, he says, or he is, he is taught, there are many different Tuscan tribes. Since the oceans dried, we have stayed hidden. Other tribes have survived by killing. So this is a this tiny little bit that he says here gives us so much history. The Tuscans have been here since before the oceans dried up. They are the indigenous people of this land. No questions asked. Boba responds to them, you shouldn't have to hide your warriors. You know every grain of sand in the Dune Sea. So they tell him he is a good guide. Um, and their gift to him is going to be to guide him now. Their gift is a lizard in a little basket. Boba is clearly confused, but genuinely grateful and thanks them before uh, the lizard ends up jumping up his nose. Uh, he gets even more confused, and to clarify, they say that it will guide you from inside your head. So things start to go blurry, and he has his little walkabout here. He walks and walks and walks, seeing in the sands the ocean that it once was, which is really fantastic visuals that they put in there, with a tree at the center. There are spirits in the tree, and it starts to take him within it, pulling it under like the Sarlacc pit. And he remembers being a boy, watching his father leave their home, and he manages to break free from the tree's roots. As he does so, there is stunning visual imagery of waves crashing on the ocean, which I 100% take as another call out to his Maori heritage, the people of the water. When he returns in the morning, Boba is carrying the stick from the tree and the lizard leaves him. They take him inside, give him his warrior clothes, which is what we see him for the first time in Mando. They take his stick and the stick that he pulled from the pit and they teach him how to shape it into one of their warrior staffs. When it is over that night, the tribe gathers around the fire. Boba and the lead warrior woman start a dance around the fire, and as they dance, more and more Tuscans join in until the whole tribe is joined, and that is how the episode ends. Now, I am not done talking about it. 
If you are at all familiar with Maori traditions, you can easily recognize this as something very similar to a haka, a traditional mem- I must say memorial, a traditional Maori ceremonial dance, often done by their warriors before battle. It makes this whole sequence very, very meaningful. Because when the sand people, as they were initially called, were first introduced in 1977, they were portrayed as violent, uncivilized tribes of dangerous villains. However, both Mandalorian and Book of Boba Fett have taken a different stance, one that accepts the Tuscans as the planet's indigenous population, who are watching their native home and its resources be appropriated by the would-be colonizers. The metaphor that is here for our own world should not take any explaining. The whole arc of this episode uh, echoes the Maori protest movement for indigenous sovereignty and self-determination, not just in New Zealand, but across the world. This episode also echoed the process of carving the taiha, a traditional Maori spear that functions as both a practical weapon as well as a ceremonial artifact that's passed down over generations. Clearly, that is what they made with the Tuscan Raiders. What Tamora Morrison has to say for himself about this kind of these metaphors, we all know that the world about the word colonized. It's a great opportunity for me as a Maori from New Zealand to put us on the world stage again. I feel a sense of responsibility. I come from a warrior background in New Zealand. I'm a Maori and I've been trained. It gives me something to draw on. I was I was trained as a young boy back in New Zealand in the art of our haka. Ha is the breath, ka is the fire. I'm using my warrior background as a source of energy and a source of confidence. He also says, I put the name of one of my ancestors on my chair, my changing room, and on my parking space. So when I pulled in, there was my ancestor's name, Tamate Kapua, one of the captains that traversed the Pacific and arrived in New Zealand. It gave me a sense of pride, a sense of responsibility for the people back home who will get to watch some of this stuff. That is heavy. I don't think you can you can deny that that is very heavy. Um, I am not an indigenous person. I'm not descended from any of anything like that. But I the the, the pride that I can feel reverberating off of everything that he's put into that the dance the the ceremonial creation of the the stick weapon the everything that he did the talking to the to the would-be colonizers about how this is their ancestral land they own it by birthright it is theirs by their people's right it's fantastic it is profound as hell um and it is totally what i would love to continue seeing in star wars these kinds of really overarching metaphors that can be applicable to our own world that actually mean something because while i got really pumped up about how excited i was about star wars and how great these episodes were this is how you make it meaningful you tell a story that is relatable to our own world this is real this is something that is real for us for real for people on earth and that means a lot to them and i'm i am beyond beyond thrilled i can't describe how how exciting it is that they put that effort in there it is excellent the next episode of of uh say mandalorian book of boba fett is going to premiere this wednesday the 12th on disney plus and i will talk about it next monday and that wraps up this week's Monday episode of Sensational She Geek, live from Yancey Street. My husband just got home. I gotta let him into the room. 
Uh, thank you for listening for whatever portion you listen to this. I hope you like Book of Boba Fett as much as I do. I hope you understand why I think those certain parts of it are important. Um, and I hope that your 2022 has started off um, good. Mine started off horribly and then just immediately flipped around to be great. So I'd like to see that trend continue. And I hope that you have great things happening in your year as well. Get sweaty. Love comics. Be a weirdo as much as you want. See you next week.